0: All right, so as you open your Bibles to John chapter 7, the first thing you're going to see in the ESV or in every other translation, probably besides the King James, is something in brackets. The earliest manuscripts do not include 753 to 811. I just want to preface this. If this is your first time here, welcome. We're glad you're here. And you're going to witness a once in 20 year sermon, probably. Because there are only two passages in the entire New Testament that have this disclaimer before approaching them. And it's the ending of Mark which is highly contested and this particular passage, the woman caught in adultery, it's a very beloved passage but it is also highly contested. We're going to speak to why the ESV and every other modern translation has that disclaimer there, what that means for our Bible, what that means for the text in general, and what that means for what we understand about the gospel. And so I'm going to do three things today. Uh, basically you're gonna get two sermons in one. You didn't know you were gonna be getting two for one when when you got here. But I'm gonna do three things today. I'm gonna look at textual criticism in general. I'm gonna look at textual criticism specifically. And we're gonna look at gospel principles that we can pull out of this passage. And so I wanna start with this. I think you know me well enough to know that I love God's word more than anything. And we are faithful here to make sure that God's word is first and foremost. And I would choose my words carefully here. I wrote them down. I was going to say despise, but that's a little harsh. I have zero patience for skeptics and critics who spend their entire careers trying to undermine the authority and reliability of Scripture. And there are people who have made careers on this. This is not what we're doing here this morning. And so I'm going to spend probably half our time looking at what's called textual criticism. What is textual criticism? Textual criticism is essentially the study of the original manuscripts, uh, trying to find out what texts are original. Do we have the original words that John wrote to the churches of John's time, uh, and and has it been preserved over time? And textual criticism studies the original languages, the Hebrew and the, the Greek in this case, and seeing what belongs and what doesn't. And again, this is one of only two texts in the entire New Testament, where we would ever address this, and this is a serious area of of study, and most of you have no idea. And in, in seminary, we speak about this probably in every class about the debates that are going on in academia. And so, there's a debate that most of you don't even know is going on. There are people, again, who stake their entire careers. They're like angry mobs with uh, pitchforks, ready to set fire to any Christian who says that Scripture is God-breathed and it's God's authority and it stands the test of time and it's preserved by the Holy Spirit. And this battle in academia is between many faithful biblical scholars and those who want nothing more than to discredit Christians and our Scriptures. Okay, so why is this important to us? Okay, here's why this matters, because many people will tell you that you can't trust your scriptures. Many people will tell you that God's word is full of errors and it contradicts itself all throughout. And this is an example that people will use. And this is a prime example uh, of why this study is important. And I just want to encourage you that as many skeptics are, as are out there, there are many more faithful, Bible-believing, God-honoring scholars who scour over every manuscript that we have to make sure that they defend rightly the word of God. So we're going to look at that a little bit today. And here's the other reason why that matters. Because the people who do not want God's word to be an authority, the people who do, do not want us to rely on the scriptures, teach in every major university in the country. Parents, if your children are planning to go to school, it's not that they may hear this, they will hear this. They will have professors tell them that you're a fool and you're some backwards caveman if you believe in a book written 2,000 years ago. Every institution in the country, many even with Christian names in them, will try to undermine God's word. And so that's why there are faithful scholars who, trust me, those are not some of my favorite classes in, in seminary. And I, I love the guys who do that. But if you can pore over uh, Greek letters that are, are very hard to distinguish... No punctuation, no spaces. For hours and days and weeks and months and years at a time to make sure that what we have in in our hands can be can be tested and defended. I applaud them. And this is not for all of you. And um, if any of you really have an interest in this, I can give you plenty of resources. I'll be happy to email you stuff. And there's a book I'm going to recommend at the end as well. But just a couple things to keep in mind. I'm going to keep this very brief just to give you an idea of what's going on here. So the scriptures we have are written from the apostles or by those who were with the apostles within the the first century. So Jesus died around 30 AD. All of them were written probably before 90 AD. And so here's just one fact. There are many more, we could spend hours on this, but we won't. The Bible is more attested, so meaning we have more evidence for the Bible 250 times more than the most attested document in the life of Christ. Let me put that in perspective. Uh, Livy's Roman History, which was written at the time of Christ, has 20, 20 sources, either fragments or manuscripts that attest to its historicity, so its its value in history. The New Testament has 5,801 to 20. And what's amazing is, is that even among that, most of our sources, over 3,000 of them, are earlier than everything we have for secular documents of that age. So uh, Livy's Roman history, the earliest manuscript that we have is from around the 10th century. 3,000 manuscripts or fragments are from before that. Kind of getting a, a picture here, so... The apostles wrote in the 1st century, most of the historical secular documents were not preserved before the 9th or 10th century. So we have got 900 years of silence, and the Christian scriptures have way more than, than that. This is what's interesting, though, because in academia, no one doubts that we know the words of Julius Caesar. No one doubts that we know Roman the, um, Livy's Roman history. No one doubts that, that we know the words of uh, Plutarch or you go down the line of the the, the Greek or Roman writers. No one doubts them. But everyone puts the biblical scriptures under a microscope. And they are way more highly represented than any secular document. And so where the comfort in that comes for us, and I just want to just cut to the chase, you can trust your Bibles because the more I study this, The more I compare what's out there, the more sure the transmission and preservation of our scriptures has been. And it encourages me, the more I read about it, the more overwhelming the evidence is for scripture. And what helps us is the more documents we have, the better comparison we can do. So if someone says there's an error here, well, we can say we have 40 other manuscripts that say otherwise. Or if 40 manuscripts say one thing and three manuscripts say another, then we, we can lean pretty heavily on that. So many of you will hear uh, your Bibles are full of errors, right? You, you've heard that a lot. People will say that. This is the Greek New Testament. So this is what every pastor, or seminary student will hold. Um, or drop. Uh, so what happens when you talk with your hands, things just start flying. So this little list here gives us, uh, tells us where every one of these fragments or manuscripts are. It tells us what century they came from, what books they contain, and where they're housed. So if we say, well, this wasn't there, well, I can say in Rome we have a manuscript from the 4th century that agrees with a manuscript from the 3rd century which agrees with a codex or a book from the 10th century. Make sense? Within this Greek New Testament that we're taught how to use and, and disciplined to use... There's an apparatus at the bottom. And what that basically tells us is where every variant is in Scripture. So that word variant. So, you know, it doesn't mean error. It means that there is a, variant, a difference where every difference in the manuscript is. And so and I love that faithful biblical scholars have written down what every one of these is, what every manuscript throughout history says about it. And so let me give you an example, because many people say, oh, it's full of errors, and we don't have to look far. There's, there's variants in probably every chapter of the New Testament. One of them, if you look in, in your Bibles, John chapter 8, verse, was it 16? Yeah, verse 16 says here, Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. Most of you, if you're reading with the Pew Bibles, or you have an ESV. You see a little number one or number two next to Father. You see what it says at the bottom? Some manuscripts say he... So looking at the apparatus here, the word Father appears in, I will guess, probably about a hundred of the manuscripts that we have for the Gospel of John. The word Father, pater in in, in the Greek, is omitted in four, and we are so careful that if four manuscripts out of a hundred for John omit the word Father, we will be up front and say, some of, our, some of our documents don't say that. So one of the things I love about the ESV is, okay, we will put all of our flaws in, in, in full display. And we go on and on. I've got many of those. But just to let just to let you know, no essential doctrine in the Bible, no historical fact is brought into question by a variant. Not one of these variants undermines any doctrine that, that we hold dear. And it's important to know that because the essential doctrines of the faith are, faith are not based on one Verse. We know that Jesus is man and God because all of the New Testament proclaims it. We know that God is sovereign because all of Scripture proclaims it. We know that Jesus rose from the dead because every New Testament book attests to it. And so the essentials of the faith are not brought into question by, in many of these, these variants, if someone says Jesus Christ instead of Christ Jesus, we will note it. So that, so that no one can say, oh, you're ignoring errors or variants. And it, is this helpful to kind of know what goes on? And people study this stuff their entire careers. And so we can trust God's sovereignty in preserving his truth. And that's why we read from Isaiah 55 earlier that God will send his word out and it will not come back void. It will accomplish its purpose. And so then there's, then there's a question, and I wish I could spend more time on this, but I won't. I'm going to keep it simple. What is scripture? How do we define what scripture is? Is scripture what has been adopted over time and made its way into the tradition? Or is scripture what was breathed out by the Holy Spirit in the original hand of the original author? And I would say it is the latter. Because many will say, well, scripture becomes whatever the church makes it over time. So then you're taking out the the human author in that. And just to put it out there, we do not have... One original manuscript, meaning we do not have any what they call an autograph. We do not have anything that was penned by the hand of Peter or the hand of Paul or the hand of John. Uh, And as John Piper explains, I, I think it's probably good because if we did, we would probably be tempted to worship it. The Catholic Church would have it in a box somewhere and they would pay admission and people would be trying to touch it so that they could be healed because the Apostle Paul touched it. We were not to worship the documents themselves. But we do know because of the witness of the early church, we have great commentaries from the early church. The fathers of the church started writing within decades of these things being written and they comment on entire books. And so we have preserved the notes and the sermons and all of the witnesses of the early church within a generation or two of them being written. Uh, so our, our history is pretty solid. So how do we determine what is scripture? Does everything the apostles write become scripture? Does John's grocery list become scripture? You know, Peter, we think he was married when Peter wrote to his wife. Does that become scripture? So, just to give you some markers, how do we determine what is scripture? One, we look at apostolicity, a big word that means was it tied to the apostles? Was it either written by an apostle or those who walked and learned with an apostle? Second, is it self evident that it's scripture? If you spend enough time in scripture, you know the original, you get something that's that's speaking from left field. You realize, okay, that's not scripture. So is it from the apostles? Is it self-evident? Is it consistent? Is it in agreement with the rest of, of scripture? We know that God will not contradict himself. So if we come across something that contradicts itself or contradicts other passages in scripture, we can know that this is not from the Lord. Also, we look at age and usage. How do we know the age of a document? We know uh, when they were were using vellum, when they're using parchment, when they started using books. And so in the form that we find it, we know what age it is. And most times these things were preserved in clay pots. And we knew uh, what cultures were making what type of pots at the time. And it can be compared with the language and the handwriting and the age of everything else. And then the last thing is usage. So we've got uh, connection to the apostles. We've got self-evidence We've got consistency, we've got age and usage. How was it used? Does the early church use this? A great example is the Gospel of Thomas. This just you know, popped on the scene 10, 15 years ago, and everyone gets really excited about the Gospel of Thomas because it says all these secret things that Jesus said to Thomas that he said to no one else. Well, one, the scriptures say nowhere that Jesus said these secret things to Thomas or Jesus had this relationship with Thomas that he didn't have with anyone else. Now, the Gospel of Thomas is an early document, probably the second or third century. But no one, no one in the early church ever quotes the Gospel of Thomas, ever. No one even thought that this was was biblical. Because in the Gospel of Thomas, they they quote from scripture, but they also add some really left field things that you as a Christian would see in one second say, that's not biblical. That is not from our, our scriptures. And so this is a modern desire to impose something on on Scripture. And it was probably uh, associated with with Gnosticism, and it was an early heretical document that has no bearing in Scripture. But if you read it and compare it to biblical documents and you look at the record of church history, you see that this was not used. Everybody with me so far? All right, so now we're going to look at the passage criticism. Okay, so that's textual criticism in general. Now we'll look at our passage specifically. So I'm going to preface this by saying I am not a biblical scholar and um, I do read Greek, but very rudimentarily. But many scholars, pastors, all scholars, pastors that I respect and agree with are in are in consistent agreement with this passage not being original to the gospel of John. And so I will say that this is not canonical, meaning that it does not belong in the canon. That does not mean that it's not helpful. And this is probably a true event. Almost everyone agrees that this probably happened because has all the marks of Jesus' work. It speaks to the grace of the message of the gospel. It speaks to the way that he interacted and the, and the people interacted with him. And so uh, many will treat it as a historical event. And John himself says if he were to write down everything Jesus did, it would fill up all the books in all the world, but he didn't. So we have to hold on to what, what has been preserved in, in Scripture And so let me talk about this text just a little bit. I don't want to bore you, but I don't want to spend an entire hour on on all the research I did in the past few weeks. But just give you some things. One of the things, John is a beloved gospel. It's beloved today. It was beloved back then. So as much as we love it and spend time in it now, the early church did as well. And we know from the um, church fathers that they use John often in their their preaching. We have many commentaries. uh, from the early church. So John is one of the books that we're pretty clear on what's there. Every early church father, every father of the church within the first four to five centuries, no one mentions this text. They go right from 752 to 812. Okay, that's number one. No early Greek manuscript mentions this. Okay, so let's let's put it this way. We have a handful of manuscripts from the 2nd and 3rd century, meaning this was written in the 1st, and within 100 to 200 years, we have a handful of, of manuscripts and entire copies of the Gospel of John, and none of them mention this passage. The first one that does is in the 5th century, so 500 years later. Codex Bezai doesn't mean anything for you guys. But that one contains much of the New Testament, but it also contains a lot of variants. That's the earliest record we have of it. This probably developed in the Western tradition. There were the East and West church in that day. The Eastern church did not reference this text until the 10th century. So the Eastern church taught through the gospel of John for a thousand years and did not mention this. And when it started to be used consistently in the 10th and 11th century it was missing from all the other early traditions. So the Coptics, the Egyptians, the the Syriacs, all of the other traditions that held to their scriptures, no one used this text. When it does begin to appear, and your Bibles will say this if you have the ESV, it appears in several different places in John and even one in Luke. So when we do have it, it's not consistently in the same place. So that's kind of the the, the historical evidence for this. Now let's talk about just natural flow and um, for those of you who've been here for the last uh, three, four weeks, we've been in the Feast of the Booths. The Feast of the Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles, where everyone comes to Jerusalem. I'm going to get into this more next week. But the two most visible representations of this feast are the water ceremonies and the light ceremonies. Last week, we looked at Jesus who said, he, if you come to him and believe, he will give you rivers of living water. You go right from that to 812, he'll say, I'm the light of the world. The big culmination to this feast was a major light show. Okay, so one, that historically uh, flows naturally. Two, I, I could spend a lot of time on this. If you look at 753, it says they each went to their own house. We've already established that in the feast of the tabernacles, no one was staying in their house. They were staying in these tabernacles, in these dwellings, in these booths. Most people were visiting Jerusalem. They could not have gone to their house because it was 20, maybe even 50 miles away. There are other things. John never mentions the Mount of Olives. John never uses the word scribes. Those are words used in what we call the synoptics. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John because they are summary um, of of Jesus' ministry. So John never uses Mount of Olives or the word scribes. But they they are consistently used in Luke and Mark especially. Uh, And so here was the, the big kicker for me. John is a fisherman John writes in blue-collar Greek that means I can read it that means when I read through John he's very repetitive he uses simple language he doesn't use multi-syllable words as we would say he has a very simple beautiful working man's Greek then you come to this passage and it reads a lot like Luke so this doesn't mean much when you're when you're reading the English But Luke is a doctor. Luke is a physician. If you ever read the the writings of a fisherman and then go to read the writings of a doctor, they might be a little bit different. As soon as you hit this passage, this passage uses words that John does not use. Uses that the sentence structure is more complicated. The words are more more precise. They're more varied. There's not much repetition. And it was difficult trying to read through that this week where John flows a lot easier. And I think you would know if you were reading from someone who writes in a simple style and all of a sudden the the vocabulary is just through the roof. That was the the big kicker for me. So there are many other reasons, but that's all I'm going to get into today. So I want to ask just one question. If this passage is not original to John, does it affect the biblical Jesus? Does it change or challenge any of our major doctrines? Does it affect anything historically? And I think you can easily answer that no, it doesn't. We're going to read through this, um, and, and then I'm going to pull some biblical principles out from that. But this is it, helpful for us to know. If this is removed from, from Scripture, Jesus is still man and God. Our God is still three in one. There is still only life through faith in Jesus Christ. The resurrection is still real. His second coming is still real. None of that is affected by this, this passage, and so you should rest in that. So let's pray. I'm going to read through this and I'm going to show us how this this is helpful because there are biblical principles in this passage. Let's pray. Lord, you are good and gracious to us. You're mighty in all of your ways. Lord, we don't understand how you spoke through human author's and gave them the words to speak, let alone how you preserve your word for 2,000 years. We don't know why you allow some passages to stand while others were lost over time, but we, we trust your spirit. We trust that your word is preserved by the power of your mighty hand, and it is preserved for your people, so that the blind will see, so that the dead will rise, so that there will be life and life everlasting in Jesus Christ, so that The gospel would be proclaimed, that your grace would be put on full display, that your redemptive plan to us would be so evident and so clear. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the faithfulness of the brothers and sisters who have gone before us and lost their lives to protect your word. Thank you for those who study every day to make sure that as believers, we have all the tools in our hands to stand firmly and confidently on our scriptures. Thank you that your word is not dependent on us and our understanding. You're working before us. You will be working after us. We can trust in you and your plan and your revelation to us. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the opportunity to, to be here, to be able to even represent you before your people. It is humbling. and I do not take this lightly. And I just pray that nothing I said here today will cause anyone to stumble Nothing will get in people's way, but yet it will encourage them to dig into Scripture and to trust your word and to come to you as they ought. Sinners broken in need of a Savior. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I did say I would give you a, a resource, and I forgot to mention it. There's a fantastic book that was just written. It's called Know, uh, know How We Got Our Bible, written by Ryan Reeves and Charles Hill. It's written in Everyday language, and it addresses the Old Testament, the New Testament, the, the uh, Apocrypha, all these different traditions. It's called Know How We Got Our Bible. Uh, I've read a lot of very dense academic academic books, and uh, this was actually fun to read. So uh, just if you have any more questions about that, you can look that book up, or I'd be happy to send you articles. So now what we're going to do here is look at this passage. So let's, let's read through it, and I'm going to pull some biblical principles out of it. So it says that they each went to their own house. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman had been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law of Moses now it commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? And they said this to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down, and he wrote with his finger in the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down, and he wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. So when we apply this story appropriately, it's a beautiful picture of God's grace and his forgiveness towards sinners and humility toward our own sin when we look at the sin of others. When applied incorrectly, this is used to excuse sin and make the case for no consequences whatsoever. And to say, oh, we should never judge sin, we should never identify sin. There's a danger in that, because God's word says from the very beginning that even though the world may take adultery lightly, God does not take adultery lightly. It offends God, and it should offend us because it offends God. Now, even though this may not have been written by the Apostle John in his hand, in his original Gospel account. Here are some things from this passage that we know for certain. We know that the Jewish rulers were always trying to trap Jesus. That's consistent. We know that there were there is a prohibition in the law for adulterers. That is consistent. We know that Jesus makes himself the proper the proper interpreter and judge of the word of God. That is consistent. We know that there is a temptation to judge others more strictly than we will judge ourselves, and we see that play out in the other gospel accounts. And most importantly, there is an ultimate concern by Jesus that this woman sinned no more. He calls her to repentance. Those things are consistent without Scripture, and we can, we can understand um, why this, this is, is beloved and, and still helpful. And so here's what I want to just pose at the beginning before I look at three different texts here. We love this story because it's a powerful example of the grace of Christ. But why is it so powerful? It's so powerful because the sin is so heinous and the punishment is so severe. And the grace is certainly unmerited favor that she receives. So there are three main players in this story. The adulterous woman, the crowd, and Jesus. Now for those who are more analytical, what about the Pharisees? Pharisees left with the crowd. We're going to lump them all together. So first things first, we're going to look at the adulteress. She was guilty. Her sin deserved to be punished. She deserved death. How do we know that? Turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 17. Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 2. If there is found among you, uh, within any of the towns that the Lord your God is giving you, a man or woman who does what is evil in the sight of your Lord God, in transgression of his covenant, and has gone on and served other gods and worshipped them, or the sun or the moon or any of the hosts of heaven, which I have forbidden, and it is told you uh, and you hear of it, you shall inquire diligently your proper due diligence. And if it is true and certain that such an abomination has been done in Israel, then you shall bring out of your gates that man or woman who has done this evil thing and you shall stone that man or woman to death with stones. Now she did not directly commit idolatry. We've been going through in, in, our, in our guys series and we talk about very often, idolatry is anything you put before the Lord. So they may be worshiping the sun or, or, or the moon, but if you put your own pleasure, your own gratification, your own need for companionship, your desire for physical pleasure before God, it becomes an idol. And idolatry is deserving of death. And here's how they would have executed this stoning. Look at verse 6. On the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. Pretty clear. This has set the standard for judicial practice all over the world. The hand of the witnesses shall be the first against him to put him to death. And afterward, the hand of all the people. So they were following this. So the people who were picking up rocks. Many of them were saying, we were there. Or at least, according to the law, they should have been. I don't know how many people witnessed this act or this woman caught. But if they're picking up a rock, they're assuming we have evidence for this or we witnessed it. And the ones who witnessed it were to be the ones who would first throw a stone. That's how you can see how the the, the tension develops in here. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. And this is particularly prescribed for adultery. Look at chapter 22 of Deuteronomy. A couple pages to your right. If a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die. The man who lay with the woman and the woman. So you shall purge your evil from Israel. And it goes on to say uh, that if a man lays with a, a virgin who's betrothed, take him outside of the city and stone them. Something funny is going on here because it takes two to tango. There's never been a case of adultery with one person. So there's something off here. You could tell that they're trying to set Jesus up. If they were really concerned about the law, they would have brought him to. So we see that the prescription for adultery is death. It is deserving. It is prescribed and and they would have been faithful if that was their concern. This This is where scripture helps us interpret this here. People love the quote, well, don't don't judge. You can't judge. You can't judge me. We're not to judge one another. When Jesus says not to judge, he's not saying that we can't identify sin and that we can't correct sin. But we must be aware of our own sin as well. This is what Jesus is getting at here. We must be more broken over our own sin than the desire to root sin out of someone else. That's a real question for us. When we see someone else in sin, what is our motivation? Is our motivation to address sin because it offends God and it separates that person from God and we want them to be reconciled to God? Or do we address sin because it's more of a self-pleasing desire to make ourselves look good? Because this person is guilty of something that is more that is more heinous than 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 us. I think that's a lot of what's going on here. Look at this this woman. Look how good we are. Look how evil she is. Did she deserve punishment? Biblically, yes. She deserved death. But was she the only one? We wouldn't say that there's no guilt here. But Jesus brings up the more important principle the recognition of the guilt of everyone. So now we've established that adultery is a sin. All sin is idolatry, and the punishment for idolatry is death. Now, what about the crowd? What was going through their minds when Jesus stoops down and he writes in the ground? What caused them to walk away? We don't know what he wrote. If this is true, I wish I knew what he wrote. Um, But this is just pure speculation. What if Jesus wrote down, he stooped down, and he wrote a reference to maybe Ezekiel chapter 16? Turn to Ezekiel chapter 16 with me. Ezekiel is the last of the major prophets. Ezekiel chapter 16. Let me tell you what's going on in Ezekiel chapter 16. God is speaking to an unfaithful people. God puts himself in the role of a faithful, loving husband who lavishes his wife with gold and silver and fine clothes and, and, and puts her up as a, on a pedestal before all of the nations. Yet she goes after other men. She loves other things more than she loves her husband. And she takes the gifts of her husband and she scorns them. Let me give you a little hint. Ezekiel 16 is not talking about, this is not a sexual passage. This is talking about the hearts and the desires of Israel. And as we read this, there's a temptation to say, well, we're, we're not as bad as Israel. We didn't do what they did. We didn't whore after all these other gods and these other things. Well, that's exactly what the people standing around that woman thought. So I'm going to show you through this passage how we are all adulterers. And there's a warning. I know there are children here. Uh, this is going to be a little bit Graphic. But this is biblical, and I won't go beyond where where, where Scripture goes, and this is helpful. And it needs to be graphic, because sin is graphic. We need to understand the severity of this sin like we need to understand the severity of our own sin. Look at chapter 16, beginning in verse 14. Read this through yourself. It's very powerful. I can't go through all of it, but I'm going to touch on some highlights here. And your renown went forth among the nations because because of your beauty, For it was perfect through the splendor that I bestowed upon you, declares the Lord. Yes, he set Israel apart and they were above all the other nations. But he's done the same for us. We're made in the image of God. Our beauty is is greater than anything else in creation. And so while Israel looked different from the rest of the nations, we look different from the rest of creation. We have God's beauty on us. That's the first thing to recognize. Verse 15, but you trusted in your beauty and you played the whore because of your renown and lavished your whorings on the passerby. Your beauty became his. Just like them, we're made in God's image and we're beautiful because we're made in his image. But we use his image, take what God gave and we give it away to others. We don't see ourselves as beautiful because he made us that way. We, we look for our beauty in other places. We look for our value and identity in other places with the passerby. How often do we give the things that God has given us to worthless things in this life that add nothing to us? This gets a lot more heavy, and we're going to go there. Verse 17, you also took your beautiful jewels of my gold and my silver, which I had given to you, and you made for yourself images of men, and then played the whore. They took what God gave them, and they made idols out of it. Anyone willing to say that they've never took the gifts of the creator and worshipped the gifts, worshipped the things of man, more than they worship God? We are just as guilty of spiritual adultery as Israel was. Let's go on. Verse 20. And you took some of your sons and your daughters who you had born to me. And these you sacrificed to them to be devoured. Were your whorings so small a matter that you slaughtered my children and delivered them up as an offering by fire to them. There's literal uh, an equal equivalent here. They would give their, their, their babies up to be slaughtered to these other gods, hoping to um, be, be pleased by them. The Roman and Greek culture would discard babies they didn't want for the sake of comfort. We do the same thing. Let's take it even a step further. We say, well, no, I'm, I'm not sacrificing my child. I'm not putting my child on the altar of another god. But we, I'm going to hurt some feelings here, but we devote our children more to the gods of education and sports and extracurricular activities, we put our our God in the, the full hands of worldly things way more than we put an emphasis on raising our God, our, our, chi- our children in the things of God. Do we devote our children as much to the things of God as we do the things of this world? It's a struggle in the church. Because the world tells you, well, if your child doesn't have an education, they won't be anything. God forbid your child be a plumber who loves the Lord rather than an academic who hates God's word. God forbid your your child be a housewife who loves her children and loves her husband and loves God's word rather than finding her identity in something else. We sacrifice our children to the desires of this world. Not much different than Israel. It's going to hurt a little bit more. (laughs) Verse, Verse 30 says, how sick is your heart? Look at verse 32. Adulterous wife who receives strangers instead of her husband. Men give gifts to all prostitutes, but you gave your gifts to all your lovers, bribing them to come to you from every side with your whorings. What does this say here? Even a prostitute gets reimbursed for what they're doing. You're giving it away for free. You're bribing others. Yep. You're giving yourself away to, to things that, that give you nothing in return. You, are, you are, are paying to have the most precious parts of you stolen away. What, is that? what does that look like? We don't do that. I'll tell you right now. Guys, I'm going to pick on you first. Guys... We, thank you. You're coming next. Um, <laughs> guys, we, we flirt with sports. Most of us would, would never dream of spending hours with another woman thinking about her nonstop. But how often do we make sports our mistress? Our hearts and minds are drawn toward things that, that give nothing in return. How often, guys, do we do that with, 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 with politics? How often do we do that with new cars? If I could just have this car and people would look at me a, a, certain, a certain way and we find our identity, we make idols out of these things. We pour so much of ourselves into something that gives nothing back. We're going to talk about it on Sunday. The idol of work. How many guys m- place their entire self-esteem, if you will, even though I hate the the, the term, in their career, in what they do for a living. My value comes out of my paycheck. What does it give us? Does it give us anything that lasts? And obviously these are broad generalizations. But ladies, celebrity culture, fashion, the new trends, new, new shiny things, someone else's Instagram feed... How much do we put ourselves into things that give nothing back and just empty out of us again and again and again, whoring after things, giving of ourselves to things that do not give back? We give our gifts, the things God has given us, our time, our talents, and our treasures, to things that we make into idols, and we initiate it. We do it willingly. We seek these things out. We don't put this on the same par with idolatry, with adultery, but it is idolatry just like that. And it goes on and on. I'm just going to put one more nail on the coffin. Look at verse 49. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. Oh, wait, Sodom and Gomorrah coming in here. All of us know Sodom and Gomorrah. We know what they were guilty of, right? But what does Ezekiel say about Sodom and Gomorrah? This was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride. Excess of food and prosperous ease. No mention of sexual immorality. What led to sexual immorality? Pride. Excess of food and prosperous ease. Doesn't sound like us at all. That's what led to sexual immorality. That's, what, that's where God called down rain of fire from heaven. And not only that, in their riches, they forgot the needs of the poor. This is God's indictment on Sodom and Gomorrah, and he's comparing Israel to that. This is bad news. Is there any hope here? We're all clear. This is the adulterers club. We're all all members. I've all initiated you in. But there's good news at the end of this chapter. Go to verse 60. Starting in verse 59, he says, Even though you've broken the covenant, What's he going to do in verse 60? Yet I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth and I will establish for you an everlasting covenant. Skip down to 62. This is so important. Don't miss this. I will establish my covenant with you and you shall know that I am the Lord. That you may remember and be confounded and never open up your mouth again because of your shame. When I atone for you. For all that you have done, declares the Lord. What is the mark of the new covenant? That God himself atones. No more sacrifices needed. God himself would shed blood for the sins of adulterers. That is the mark of the new covenant. Now is where we enter the third party in this whole story. Jesus. So Jesus leaves her with these words, Neither will I condemn you. Go and sin no more. This is the beauty of the gospel. Because adulterers who deserve death, who with stones in hand deserve every one of them, he intercedes. This is because of me, there is no condemnation. Because we are all guilty. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. We know this is consistent with Jesus' culture. We just looked at it in chapter 5. The crippled man. Jesus' concern was not that he walked on the Sabbath, that he didn't continue to sin after he walked. This is a picture of God's grace for adulterers, that through Christ there is no condemnation but new life. And we should all know this. Where where do we find that? There's now no condemnation in Christ Jesus. Romans 8. Turn to Romans 8. So we're going to bring it home. I'm going to work through this quickly. You should be familiar with this, but I want you to get this in full context. I want us, even if the rest of Christendom does not do this, at Grace Fellowship, I want us to be people who are not bumper sticker Christians. I love my brothers and sisters who are bumper sticker Christians, who have five verses and they put them on everything and that's all they know. But I want us to know these things in context. Why is it so important that there is now no condemnation in Christ Jesus? Look with me in Romans chapter 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's not just no condemnation for all sinners, those who are in Christ. Paul has already established in Romans that to be in Christ, you must have faith in him and you can only be justified by your faith in him, which gives you union with him. So what does that mean? For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ. There's freedom in Christ from the law of sin and death. Well, we read that and don't think about it. What does the law of sin and death bring to mind after we look at Deuteronomy? It's only just a few minutes ago. Our idolatry and our, our adultery is deserving of death. The law of sin and death. Every time we look at the law, we talk about this in Romans, it's a mirror. It shows us our own sin. It shows us that we deserve death. We deserve to be that woman who's stoned on the ground because we have gone after other things that are not of God. The law of sin and death cannot have freedom. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. You cannot earn salvation. You cannot earn God's favor. It is only by His grace. The law cannot save. The law only brings death. And how did He do that? By sending His own Son. In the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin... He condemned sin in the flesh. Instead of condemning us, when we put our trust in Christ, he condemns sin. He stoned sin, put it to death in himself in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. This is crazy talk. We're adulterers. We run after, we whore after everything that's not God, but in Christ, his righteousness is fulfilled in us. That is the beauty of the gospel. In us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit, go and sin no more. If you understand the gospel, how could you continue in sin? Christ has laid his righteousness upon you. Skip down to verse 7. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. This isn't a suggestion, this is a declaration. In the flesh, apart from Christ, there is no pleasing God, and the stoning, righteous wrath of God remains on us. I love these words that Paul uses. You, however, not like the one who the wrath of God remains on, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, don't miss this, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. There is no condemnation if the spirit of God is within you. If you have trusted in Christ, he said, it's better that I go. He said, I send my spirit and my spirit that is in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if it is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, although the body is dead because of sin, although just like that woman, we deserve to be stoned and killed on the spot for our sin, our bodies may be dead because of sin. But the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. You can only go from death to life because Christ has been raised from the grave. Without the resurrection, without the cross, all this is meaningless. But because Christ was raised to new life, because Christ did put sin to death, Because in him there is life. We can now have life in sin no more. Amen? This is what I want you to take out of this story. This does not change the definition of sin. That's what a lot of people like to do with this account. It is still sin. Or it does not change the definition of justice. Sin still needs to be punished. But here's what it does change. It changes who receives the just punishment for sin based on the grace of Christ through his resurrection. Let's close with this. You can trust your Bible. If you want to talk about this more, if this bothers you, I'd be happy to talk about it. And we can interpret this story according to scripture and not have our faith challenged whatsoever. She was about to be stoned and she deserved death. Death was certain, but because God is rich in mercy, Christ is there to pardon. And there is free life, new life in Christ Freedom from the old and freedom from sin. If Christ intercedes from you, go and sin no more. Let me just leave you with this. Know the gospel. Know that sin deserves death. Know that we are all adulterers. But because of Christ, there's grace and new life. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your gospel. Thank you that adulterous whores like us. I don't say that very often. Um, that our hearts can, are prone to wander and go after everything but you. Yet because of Christ, you draw us to yourself. You take our wicked hearts and turn them into a heart of flesh and pump new life through our veins, the life of Jesus Christ. And I pray that for believers, we would rest on that. Rest on our new life in Christ, that he intercedes for us and puts sin to death for us. And if you don't know Christ, you're as guilty as that woman on the ground, ready to be stoned. But in Christ there is grace, there is intercession, there is freedom, and there is new life for those who trust in him. This is the good news of the gospel. This is why we gather, and this is why we stand firmly on our scriptures.